Good afternoon, it's Pastor Patrick Hines, and uh, we are live. Uh, if you are uh, watching this, and it's 3 p.m. on February 22nd, uh, 2024, and if not, uh, it's not live. You're watching the recording. <laughs> uh, this morning, this morning, this afternoon, I was thinking about this morning, this afternoon I want to talk about good works. Uh, there's a lot of false teaching uh, out there about good works, and scripture uh, gives us uh, wonderful uh, summary of uh, God's uh, mind on the matter, and that's what we all need to know. Uh, in fact, uh, in my uh, in my feed, often uh, stuff from false teachers and YouTube uh, will pop up, and and I'll I'll click on videos and watch and things like that. And I watched a, a Federal Vision video on James chapter two, and was like, wow, just theobabble. Theobabble butchery of God's word. That's that's all that that was. And so I wanted to talk today about good works, um, the way that they are described in Holy Scripture by going through uh, a great summary of uh, the scriptural teaching on this matter from the Westminster Confession of Faith. I also pulled some, uh, excuse me, some quotations from different books um, I've got on Kindle that I'd like to uh, go through some of that material as well. So, hey, the followings are here. Howdy. Good to see you guys. So the Westminster Confession, chapter 16, uh, is of good works. And this is a really important passage of scripture because there is so much uh, in the Bible about works and what good works are and the judgment of works for rewards. And we're going to talk about that because it's pretty remarkable. I was reading a lengthy quote from John Calvin um, in preparation to, to address this topic today. And uh, Calvin, of course, in his uh, usual masterful way, addresses the issue spot on biblically um, and really does a good job of, of bringing out what Scripture teaches about good works, about how God uh, recompenses us for our suffering um, by rewarding our works. And it's, it's absolutely incredible um, that the legalists and false teachers out there use the very passages that are supposed to be an encouragement to Christians uh, to persevere in doing good works, uh, where we're talk it talks about the, them being rewarded and things like that. Um, those are used to try to say, see, this is how you're saved. And of course, that's not what any of those uh, passages teach. But I'd like to go through the Westminster Confession here. Uh, the first point, uh, point number one of chapter 16 of good works in the Westminster Confession, says good works are only such as God hath commanded in his holy word, and not such as without the warrant thereof are devised by men out of blind zeal or upon any pretense of good intention. <clears throat> so it might be the case at times that a true believer might uh, feel conscience bound in some way to do something like, for example, or, or to not do something uh, such as, for example, uh, having a glass of wine. Um, you have a glass of wine and there's alcohol in it. Uh, someone might believe that it is really a good work and is pleasing to God and is a work for which they will receive a reward on the day of judgment to refuse to drink that glass of wine. Um, the problem is that's not a good work because God has not forbade the use of wine um, in moderation, of course. Drunkenness is not uh, permissible, um, but the consumption of, of a glass of wine is not a sin. And also, um, not, not consuming a glass of wine is not necessarily righteous either. Okay. So only what God's word says is a good work. Only what his commandments actually say to us count as good works, <clears throat> like the monastic life or living in a convent or, 
um, taking vows of, of uh, poverty, chastity, things like that. We're not told to do that in scripture, so those don't count as good works. So that's the first principle, and that's a really, really important one because a lot of people have done a lot of, of strange things thinking that they're pleasing God by doing this or by not doing something, uh, when in point of fact, um, doing it was not sinful um, and not doing it was uh, not righteous. Um, one of the things we learned about in seminary was the pole sitters. Uh, early early on in, um, in Christian history, people decided to retreat from society and sit on poles out in the wilderness, you know, 20 feet, 25 feet high, and they just lived their entire lives on the on the poles, and people would, you know, send up with ropes, um, uh, food, and uh, things for them to put their waste in, and things like that. But people thought that that was good work. The Bible does not tell us to do things like that. It doesn't tell us to go sit on a pole and live in the wilderness, uh, nor does it tell us to uh, um, isolate ourselves from society and focus on uh, our own salvation and things like that. Um, you want to be saved? You repent and believe the gospel, believe Jesus Christ, and you are saved. Okay, so doing things like that was never pleasing to God and never will be pleasing to God. So good works are only such as God has, has commanded in his word and not such as without the warrant thereof are devised by men out of blind zeal or upon any pretense of good intention. That's one thing that's really important. Um, it doesn't matter what our intentions are. What God is aiming at when it comes to the Christian life is simply to obey him. Micah 6 verse 8. He has shown you, O oh man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. <clears throat> so we are to follow the will of God as he has shown us what that is. Not what we make up, but only as he shows us. Okay, so that's point number one. Uh, point number two, these good works done in obedience to God's commandments are the fruits of and evidences of a true and lively faith. Okay, now James chapter two uh, is a passage that, sadly, I, I don't, I don't think it's really that hard to interpret it. I, I really don't. Um, but it's it's become a quote unquote controversial passage, not because of Christians, but because of um, people who misinterpret it. But uh, I can't show someone that I believe in Jesus, but I can show someone my works. So if someone says, I have faith, but they have no works, well, is that really, is that really true faith then? Well, um, if uh, uh, people truly believe in Jesus, their life will be transformed. They will uh, do good works uh, because God has saved them unto a life of good works and has, has made them zealous for good works. Titus chapter 2 teaches that. Uh, that God has redeemed us from all of our lawless deeds and purified himself for himself, his own special people who are zealous for good works. Okay. Now those good works as the Westminster confession here rightly points out, good works are fruit and evidence. Uh, I think that everyone should look at themselves in the mirror every morning and remind themselves of that. My good works are fruit and evidence that my faith is real. Good works are not what faith is. They're not included in what faith is. Good works are not part of what saves us in any way, shape, or form. So these good works that we do in obedience to God's commandments, as a person becomes more, more pure after they come to know Christ, they become more, more sexually chaste and pure. They uh, get better um, with telling the truth. They get better 
uh, keeping the Sabbath day holy. They, they are better as an, as an employee or employer with their inferiors and superiors and equals. They're, they're more respectful to those that rule over them. Um, they spend money better. They don't steal. They, they tell the truth. They, they, they work on being more content in knowing Christ and, and, and w- with what they have in life. And uh, very, very, very important that we uh, understand this. Okay, Good works are fruit and evidence of a true and lively faith. They are not what true and lively faith is. Okay, so that's the first thing. James chapter 2, verse 18 says, Someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. So James chapter 2 is talking about the justification of a profession of faith. James chapter 2, verses 14 to 26, is talking about the way that professions of faith are justified before men. Okay? I don't need to justify my profession of faith before God. God already knows if my faith is real or not. But if someone says they have true faith, but their life is totally unaffected, totally unaffected by their supposed conversion, we can know for sure that they don't have true faith. Okay, so good works are what we are saved unto we are, and, and redeemed unto, but they are not in any way, shape, or form what redeems us. Good works are fruit and evidence. They are not organically connected to faith. They are not what is inside of faith. They are the byproduct, the fruit, the evidence that faith is real. And of course, what is faith in Jesus Christ? Faith in Jesus Christ is a saving grace whereby we receive and rest upon him alone for salvation as he is offered in the gospel. So faith is relying upon Jesus Christ and nothing else, not your works, your piety, your intention. It's reliance upon the finished work of Christ to save you, to justify you, to get you all the way into heaven by itself, apart from your works. Okay, so good works done in obedience to God's commands are the fruits and evidences of a true and lively faith. And by them, by these good works done in obedience to God's commandments, believers manifest their thankfulness. Okay, very important concept there. Uh, I've emphasized this a lot throughout my ministerial life. Um, it's, it's a dead giveaway that someone doesn't understand the gospel if they if they do not like the idea that gratitude is what inspires obedience and holiness. It's actually a direct didactic teaching of the word of God. In 2 Corinthians 4.15, we're told that grace, having spread through the many, would cause the giving of thanks to abound to the glory of God. So grace causes thanksgiving in in the form of obedience to God. So grace leads to gratitude. It's how we show our thankfulness. Okay, so what motivates me to live a godly life, and I did a whole podcast just on this, remember? Um, What motivates me to be godly is gratitude, not fear, not trying to save my skin. Because that would destroy the motive. The motive for obedience is love to God and thankfulness to him for having saved us. So when we do good works and when we grow in grace and we grow in our personal holiness and we grow uh, in our knowledge of who Christ is, we show our thankfulness to God in doing so. We also strengthen our assurance. If I do good works, if I if I begin to overcome more sin in my life by keeping God's commandments, that's wonderful. That's one of the things, that's one of the tests that were given in um, uh, 1 John chapter 2, 
uh, as to how we know that we have eternal life. How, how do I know that I really know Christ? First John 2, 3. By this we know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. Now, when he says that, he doesn't mean keep his commandments to the satisfaction of God's holiness. And it's very important that we make that distinction in our reasoning. Uh, people very often um, fail to make this distinction. There is a vast difference between describing someone as, generally speaking, morally upright, godly, holy, and saying that they are sinlessly perfect. Uh, one of the dead giveaways that someone probably does not understand this issue very well is when they quote um, from the Gospel of Luke about Zacharias and Elizabeth. Remember Zacharias and Elizabeth? I was actually talking to someone today about Zacharias and Elizabeth. We were talking about angels because remember the angel Gabriel shows up in the temple there. But Zacharias and Elizabeth are described by the Holy Spirit in Luke chapter 1. Here, let me actually pull up the passage here. I think it's Luke 1, 5. Yeah. Now, there, there was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah. His wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And listen to verse 6. And they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless. Now, what does that mean? It doesn't mean that they were sinlessly perfect, and it doesn't mean that they were saved by walking in all of God's commandments and ordinances blamelessly. It's simply describing John the Baptist's parents as being from godly stock. These are these were godly people who walked in God's ways, and it's there's everything legitimate about talking about people that way when that's true of them. That is a is it very different from saying that someone is sinlessly perfect by their works or anything like that. Okay, so that, that's the first thing to know about good works. The thing is such an important point uh, because I don't know if anyone here who's over there in the channel has ever heard of a fellow named Jason Stellman. Uh, Jason Stellman is an apostate. He was a PCA minister who converted to Roman Catholicism. And I remember listening to an interview that he did and right out of the gate, He's quoting from Luke chapter one, verse six. Well, Zacharias and Elizabeth, they were blameless. They were righteous. And I just was like, were you sleeping when they taught you how to do exegesis and when they taught you hermeneutics? Why would you go to a passage that's describing people as being generally morally upright as if it's a treatise on how to get to heaven? And I thought, well, of course, of course, he's going to quote that passage because once you deny sola scriptura, you don't care about context. The Bible becomes a a field of proof text that you can use or pick and choose stuff to try to prop up various doctrines that you have been taught by your external authority. But the, the thing I'm trying to emphasize to you here, Christians do make real progress in their Christian lives. And we will begin to obey God's commandments uh, more and more, a little bit more uh, as time goes on. And we'll have setbacks and we'll, we'll have seasons where we go through real, real struggles. Uh, that's one thing I've noticed, you know, com coming up on, uh, let's see, how many more days till, I'm about to turn 49, and uh, <clears throat> just thinking about the struggles with, with certain sins that started by the grace of God when I was converted when I was 18 years old. So I'm over 30 years I've been a believer, and how it goes through seasons. It's like you go through a season where you just you feel like you've totally defeated something, and then all of a sudden, it, boom, it, it rears its head again. Or you go through a really difficult time in your life. You go through something that's really stressful, really hard. Um, and then next thing you know, you're struggling with temptation of something you thought was, was long gone. Nevertheless, we do begin to make that progress in our Christian lives. And we should take heart about that. When you see in yourself desires uh, that weren't there before, 
um, or desires that used to be kind of weakened, they've gotten stronger, strong, desires for holiness and to do evangelism and to, to follow Christ and to be a, a godly husband or a godly wife that, that's, that are stronger than they were before. That's huge. That's wonderful. You should praise God for that. That's why the confession of faith says, by good works done in obedience to God's command, we manifest our thankfulness and we strengthen our assurance. It strengthens our assurance. And while the, the primary ground of our assurance is always the shed blood and the righteousness of the Lord Jesus, um, it, does, it certainly doesn't hurt uh, when we start making progress in our Christian lives, does it? It's a huge blessing when that happens. And we, we can praise God and thank God for that. So good works um, strengthen our assurance. And the next point, and we edify our brethren. One thing, too, a, a dead giveaway that someone's a true believer they will love their fellow Christians and, and they'll, they'll have a genuine concern for them. Like, you know, when, when people, even when I was in college, when I was an undergrad and, and um, was first really integrated into the life of a church, if someone didn't show up to church for a Sunday or two or whatever, you know, we'd call them. We, we'd want to know, you know, where, where's our brother? Where's our sister? Where have you been? You know, you start to have that concern for people. You edify your brethren because God puts that love for your brethren into your heart. Uh, and it says that in First uh, John, that's another great test. This is how we know that we know him. We love our brethren. Okay. When you become a Christian, you're, you're adopted into the family of God. And that's one thing that um, you instinctively know you need fellowship. You need to have Christian friends. And so by our good works, we edify our brethren. And you know what? They, by their good works, edify us. So that's a, another key part of, of good works. So good works are fruits and evidence. They are fruit and evidence of true and lively faith. And we manifest our thankfulness, we strengthen our assurance, and we encourage and edify our brethren. We adorn the profession of the gospel. You think about that. What does it mean to adorn something? It means to decorate it. It means to, to make it look nicer, to make it look better, to make it more beautiful. So when we adorn ourselves or do something like that to ourselves, we're trying to make ourselves look better. If we adorn our profession of the gospel with good works, we're making God look better. We make the Lord look better. And that's why when, when we sin, when a Christian sins, um, it's such a serious matter. Because not only are, are we sinning, um, and it, it's a violation of God's holiness and it's displeasing to him, but it's also a disgrace to his name. We're also we're also making his name look bad. Uh, last night at church, uh, we've been reading through Galatians together. And we've had such a, a great time doing it. I love doing that on Wednesday nights. I've been really, really encouraged by uh, those discussions. But listen to this. Remember Peter, when Peter withdrew from eating with uh, uh, Gentiles, because those guys came from James that were into circumcision and dietary laws. And Peter knew better because he'd been eating with, with Gentiles. But listen to the way Paul kind of calls him out in Galatians 2, 13. Listen to this. And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him, with Peter, so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. Think about that. It's one thing for Peter to sin, but Peter was an apostle. He was someone who was with Jesus during his earthly ministry. He was a man that everybody looked up to. And when he withdrew from table fellowship, when he withdrew from meeting with Gentiles, a bunch of others followed him. And even a man as great as Barnabas was led away by him too. Okay, so that's very important that we adorn our profession of the gospel by living a godly life, 
especially if we're leaders. That's one thing uh, I'll tell you, the, the trials that uh, I have been through in the last few years, especially with regard to uh, family and the, the things that have gone, that have happened in, in my family um, have been incredibly hard. And I've been reminded by dear Christian friends and family here, this is an opportunity for you to show by example to the people that you pastor and minister to, here's how a godly man handles this kind of heartache. Here's how a Christian handles this level of stress. And I've been very thankful for the people who've written me notes like that and have said things like that um, and have encouraged me. You're doing a good job showing people how how do you handle this kind of loss? How do you handle this kind of stress? So, and I um, have told them all, uh, first of all, the fact that y'all pray for me is the primary reason I do it, uh, that I've been able to do it so far by the grace of, of the Almighty. They've edified their brother, namely me, by their good works and by their encouragement. So we adorn our profession of the gospel with, with good works. We make God look good. And um, always remember, too, I, I remember doing a Sunday school class many years ago about David and about repentance and, and what it means. And I asked the question of the, uh, the Sunday school class. It was an adult Sunday school class because I had just read the passage in 2 Samuel chapter 12. I asked them, do you remember what is the reason that God gives for taking the life of that baby? that was conceived through that adultery. What was, what was the reason? And people said, uh, cause he, he committed adultery. I said, no, cause he killed Uriah and killed those other guys too. No. Remember why, why did God take the life of that baby? Nathan, the prophet said to him, however, David, because by this deed, you have given great occasion to the enemies of Yahweh to blaspheme him. The child that is born to you will surely die. Yet the adultery, very serious sin. The murders, very serious sin. But the biggest thing David did was he made God look bad. He gave reasons to Israel's enemies to blaspheme God. And when we sin, we're doing the same thing. We're giving reasons to unbelievers to blaspheme and to hate on God. And so I want to encourage you, all, all anyone that ever watches this or is over there now, I, need to, I still need to see who's over there in the channel. I want to encourage you when you suffer and when you go through hard things and when you go through the dark night of the soul or you go through a season where you feel very dry spiritually or, or very dark, always remember what's really at stake is not so much that you've, you're going through heartache. The, the biggest evil that can happen if we give in to sin and temptation, we make God look bad. And that's the thing we never want to do. That's, that's, that should be the most important thing to us is not our comfort or getting through our heartache or getting through our trial. It's I want to make sure that in God's loving providence, as he has decreed from all eternity that I would pass through this trial, I will not make him look bad as I go through it. I'm not going to give in to sin. I'm going to stand my ground. I'm going to keep going to church. I'm going to keep praying. I'm going to keep meeting with people. I'm going to keep reading God's word. And I'm going to persevere and go on because God's name is worth that effort. That's what we need to have more than anything is a desire to adorn our profession of the gospel. Also, I love the next one. Through our good works, the fruits and evidences of a true and lively faith, we stop the mouths of adversaries. I love that one. And that's there's a, a key passage that says that. Yeah, 1 Peter 2, 15. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you may put to silence the ignorance 
of foolish men. Isn't that a great passage? For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. So foolish men and unbelievers and scoffers are going to, they're going to say mean, nasty things about you sometimes, or they're going to be ugly towards you. And God says, this is his will for you. Just do good. Be on time for your job. Work really hard at it. Have integrity in the way you spend money. Be faithful to your promises and vows. Love your wife. Love your husband. Love your children. No matter what. Don't give in to temptation to lash out. Be self-controlled with your tongue. Because you see, no matter how much, no matter how much uh, we're tempted to lash out or to say something foolish, um, no matter how much the unbeliever suppresses the truth and unrighteousness, they still have enough of the image of God in them to recognize good when they see it. They still have enough of the image of God to recognize good when they the most hardened unbeliever will always have a soft spot for seeing someone who really is godly. And if you're godly, you'll do that. L- listen to, to the Holy Spirit speaking directly to your heart again. This is the will of God that by doing good, you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. You stop the mouths of adversaries just by obeying God and doing good works. And they have nothing they can say to it. It silences them. I'm all for apologetics. Let's let's shut the mouths of unbelievers by demonstrating that in their hearts they really are fools uh, to deny the existence of God and to, to disbelieve the Bible. But we also silence them by being godly. We also silence them by simply doing good. By simply doing good. Okay, the next little phrase there. Stop the mouths of adversaries and glorify God. That goes without saying, of course. Whose workmanship they are, creating Christ Jesus thereunto. A direct reference to Ephesians 2.10. That having their fruit unto holiness, they may have the end eternal life. Okay. So the first two points of chapter 16 there. Good works. The only thing that count as good works is what God has actually said are good works with his commandments. Secondly, there's all these uh, things that we do. By doing good works, we we manifest our thankfulness to God by our good works. They're, they are the fruit and evidence of lively faith. They're not included in what faith is at all, because we're justified by faith apart from fruit, apart from um, uh, obedience, apart from works. Um, but we manifest our thankfulness through our good works. We strengthen our assurance, edify one another as Christian brothers and sisters. We adorn the profession of the gospel. We stop the mouths of adversaries. We glorify God, whose workmanship we are. Okay, so that's what good works, that's their purpose right there. Good works don't save us. They are fruit and evidence of a true and lively faith. So let me get down to point number three here. Let me see who else else over here. There's Lee Hood, and I already said hi to uh, Stephen and Julia. Howdy there. There's Paul Garvey from England. Good to see you there, sir. And Paradigm Shifter. I think you've you've been on here before, haven't you? I think you're not necessarily new. And there's Daisy. Hey, Daisy. Uh, God bless you, too. And uh, I don't know. Nago Terrence from Florida, from Florida. There's Sam Woodall. Good to see you from the fields of Ingalls. You still live behind Ingalls over there on uh, in Colonial Heights? Um, but thanks for coming last night, man. It's always good to see uh, you and Jonathan at, at church. Uh, 49, you're still a youngster. Yeah, I'm not 49 yet. I'm still 48. Okay, I've got a few more days to be 48. Um, so there's uh, Lapa, Lap, Lap Academia. We're saved by Jesus plus nothing. Amen. Preach it. Preach it and don't ever let anyone take that from you. That's the, the heart of the gospel. I'll tell you, going through um, 
going through Galatians, it's just such a joy to do that with my Christian uh, brothers and sisters in the congregation here. Um, and uh, there's Rob Gibbs. Yeah, you made it to a live stream, man. So I don't have to look at your comments later. So that's good to see you. Uh, and the last point, overcome evil with good. Yeah, yeah. That Spurgeon sermon that you have out there, brother. Thanks for putting that, Rich. Uh, Mark from Providence Baptist in England. Another another person from across the pond. Uh, hopefully that they still don't see us as, as rebels. Uh, and there's Ryan, Ryan Kaiser. Introducing Ryan Kaiser. He's going to be our intern uh, starting on March 4th, uh, which is significant because that is my birthday. So, Ryan, you're like my 49th uh, birthday present. But Ryan's a great man of God. I'm excited for him to intern here at church, and he'll be preaching a couple Sunday nights a month and uh, also be taking out my trash and uh, washing my car and things like that. I'm just kidding, man. I'm excited to, to, for you to use your gifts. I always, I always learn from you. I'm always edified by your, your work, brother. Okay, 16.3 here. This is another key point of, of understanding good works. Their ability, the believer's ability to do good works, is not at all of themselves, but wholly from the spirit of Christ. Okay, so absolutely essential point there. Okay, we don't have any power in ourselves to do good works that are truly good outside of the power of the Holy Spirit of, of Christ being within us. And a great proof text for that, a great place where that's taught clearly, is John chapter 15. Uh, John 15 uh, is a great passage of scripture, and uh, I'll tell you, um, you can reflect on Jesus's words there. Listen to John 15, verses 4 and 5. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Now, that's not saying, so you, you better abide. It's talking about people who are true believers. Okay, abiding in Christ is a true believer, all right? So if a true believer is a true believer, they are abiding in Christ, they're connected, they are connected to, uh, the, to the vine. Jesus is the vine. And he says in verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, that is someone who's a true Christian, and I in him, bears much fruit. And then here's the, the phrase you, you need to reflect on. For without me, you can do nothing. Not, not saying you can't, you know, tie your shoes or take a shower or put gas in your car. What he means is you can't bear fruit. You cannot bear the fruit and, and evidence of a true and lively faith unless you abide in me. And that's not some mystical experience like, oh, like I got to, if I squint my eyes and grunt hard enough, no, I'm abiding in Christ. That's not it at all. If you're a true believer, you're abiding in Christ. But this is a reminder that without him, without being connected to the vine, you can't do. You can't bear fruit. You can't bear fruit that is pleasing to God. You can't. It is entirely dependent upon him. He is the source of it all. He is the source of our sanctification. It is a Christ-centered call to sanctification. In verse 6, if anyone does not abide in me, in other words, if he's not a Christian, he is cast out as a branch and is withered. And they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. See, see what I'm saying? The, those who abide in Christ, that's just a way of describing a true believer. That's all, it, that's all it means. It's not like, you know, there's a book by Andrew Murray called Abide in Christ. That ugh. Someone gave me that book when I was in, in college, and that book really disturbed me. Because he sees abiding in Christ as some kind of mystical, weird something like that. And I just thought, I don't know. 
I can't tell if I'm abiding in Christ or the way he describes it. But then when you look clearly at the passage and you exegete the passage, those that don't abide in Christ are those that are gathered and thrown in the fire. In other words, they're they're not the elect of God. They, they end up in hell at the end of all things. But the point being said here, the, the main thrust of that passage of Jesus's vine discourse in John 15 is that he is the source of all the fruit that we bear. And so we should never be prideful about the progress we make as Christians. He says, without me, without me, you can't do anything in terms of bearing fruit. Just like, I mean, what a great illustration. You know, we have so many trees. I have 37 trees on my lot and my kids climb a bunch of them. And, you know, occasionally they'll, they'll break a branch with the, with their feet. And then that branch, you know, it'll hang down off the tree and all, all the leaves turn brown and eventually they, they rot and fall off. And eventually the, the, the time will wear down that, that broken branch and it falls off. But Jesus is saying, if you're, if you're cut off from me, if you're not a Christian, you can't bear good fruit. You can't. So this is something only Christians can do. Only true believers can do this. Our ability to do good works is not at all of ourselves, but wholly from the spirit of Christ. What a great, that is such an encouraging thing to know. And that they may be enabled thereunto, besides the graces they have already received, there is required an actual influence of the same Holy Spirit to work in them, to will and to do of his good pleasure. They're citing from Philippians 2, 13. There's another passage that's very often misused. You wor work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, because it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Notice, please. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. It's not saying work for your salvation with fear and trembling, because you don't know if, you are, if you've ever done enough work to get it. That's how Rome uses it. But it's also work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Salvation is something that's already yours. When all else fails, just look carefully at the passages. When all else fails, just do a careful phrase-by-phrase -phrase analysis of the Bible. You, you can't miss it. Okay, a lot of times people get so used to hearing passages like that misused that it's hard for them. Oh, I don't like that passage because of this. There's no reason to dislike it. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. You work out that which you already possess. And you do it with fear and trembling, not because maybe I'm saved, maybe I'm not. That's not why. You do it with fear and trembling because it's the holy almighty God who is in you, who is at work in you both to will and to do for his good pleasures. So that's what they're talking about in the Westminster Confession here. And, and then it goes on, yet are they not hereupon to grow negligent as if they were not bound to perform any duty unless upon a special motion of the spirit, but they, but they ought to be diligent in stirring up the grace of God that is in them. So let me give you an example. Let me give you an example. So if I go downstairs in the morning and I notice that the box of graham crackers fell on the floor and somebody stepped on it and one of the dogs was rooting around in it and it made a big, big mess. I sweep it up so that my dear wife doesn't have to when she gets up. I don't look at it and go, well, I didn't feel a special prompting of the spirit. I didn't feel, you know, the Lord, the Lord did not tell me from on high to go sweep this up. Okay, don't do that. Stir up the grace that is in you. Recognize that what God commands, you just do it. You just obey. And that's an easy one. If you see something like that that you can do to help your wife, you should do it. You know, that's one thing my father, when I was a little kid, 
every time he saw me walk past a mess of some kind and not clean it up, he would say the same thing to me. He would say, son, why didn't you pick that up? And of course, being young and selfish, because mom will get it later. <laughs> and he would, he would light into me. He would say, son, it's one of the most practical ways you can love people and love your mother is if, if you pick that up, then she doesn't have to bend over and pick it up later. Why don't you just do that for her? Just because it's the right thing to do. So when you're young, oh, yeah, yeah, you don't really think about things like that. But you don't need, uh, what if I had said to my dad, well, dad, uh, I didn't have a special motion of the Holy Spirit that time. <laughs> He'd say, yeah, and the Spirit just gave me a special motion to spank you or something. And I would, then I would, I could have said, well, he didn't give me a special motion to submit to a spanking or whatever. So don't grow negligent unless some, 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 the spirit is like moving your soul or strangely warming your heart or something. But they ought to be diligent in stirring up the grace of God that is in them. And that's something that Paul told uh, Timothy to do: stir up uh, the grace of God that is in you, the the gift that is in you through the laying on of, of hands. Yeah, Second Timothy one six. Therefore, I remind you to stir up the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. In other words, keep reading your Bible. What the the mornings that you feel the strongest are? There's no need for me to pray. No, I, I can. Uh, maybe I'll read the Bible. I just don't have time. Those are the times you've got to do it. Those are the times you've got to do it. Okay, point number four of chapter 16 of the Westminster Confession. They who, in their obedience, attain to the greatest height, which is possible in this life, are so far from being able to supererogate and to do more than God requires, as that they fall short of much, which in the duty they are bound to do. Remember the uh, parable that Jesus told, so likewise, when you have done all those things which you are commanded, say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done uh, what was our duty to do. Okay, so no matter how much progress I make in my Christian life, I still am sinful. I still fall short in many ways. But what are they talking about? What does the uh, confession mean when it says they are so far from being able to super arrogate? That's a shot directly at Roman Catholicism because the Roman Catholic religion, since it does not have an atoning sacrifice that actually does anything, um, and because they do not understand the grace of God at all, and they do not have a finished work of Christ upon which to base salvation, and because in the final analysis in Roman Catholicism, you do save yourself by your works done with the help of infused grace, they actually teach that there are some people who did so many works and did so well with the infused grace they got through sacraments and scapulars and everything else, that they actually went above and beyond what God requires. That's what supererogate means. Works of supererogation in Roman Catholicism are works that people did above and beyond what the law of God requires, and their excess merit from those works that went above and beyond what the law requires, as if we could do that. But in Romanism, you can, and then the excess merit of those works goes into the treasury of merit, when, where it can then be doled out through works of man on particular days of the week and um, through uh, mass cards and other other uh, fun things like that. Obviously, we don't agree with that or believe that at all. Even the holiest Christians, even the holiest who attain the the heights of sanctification and are as godly as they could possibly get in this life. They are so far from being able to go above and beyond what God requires that they fall short 
of much which in duty they are bound to do. Okay, so even though, I mean, th think about, let's just give a real practical example. Remember Zacharias? Zacharias is described in Luke 1, 6 as blameless, righteous, walking in all of God's commandments. And yet, what was he about to do? God dispatched an angel, Gabriel, to tell him, your prayers for your wife have been heard. You're going to have a son. And she's going to have a son in her old age. And what does Zacharias do? He doesn't believe him. And he says to the angel, how will I know this since I'm so old and she's so old? That's such a funny dialogue as if evidently a conversation with an angel that just got there from being in the presence of God uh, wasn't enough to convince him. Well, how do I really know that's going to happen? <laughs> um, if an angel appears to you from the presence of God and tells you something, you can probably believe it. Probably believe it. So he, he had doubt. He struggled with unbelief, didn't he? He didn't believe what God promised he was going to do. So we know he wasn't sinlessly perfect. Maybe he was very, very, very godly. Obviously he was, but he wasn't perfect. Not by a long stretch. Not by a long shot. Okay, point number five here. We cannot, by our best works, merit pardon of sin or eternal life at the hand of God by reason of the great disproportion that is between them and the glory to come and the infinite distance that is between us and God, whom by them, by the works we do, we can neither profit nor satisfy for the debt of our former sins. Okay, so this is putting good works in their proper biblical context. Yes, they're good in that they proceed from the spirit of Christ who is in us, but insofar as they're still associated with us, they're, they're sinful and stained and everything else, but our best works do not finally save us. Our best works, even as Christians, cannot merit pardon of sin. They can't gain us eternal life. They can't play any role in saving us from the wrath of God or anything like that because of the reason of the great disproportion that is between them and the glory to come. And the infinite distance between us and God, whom by those good works we can neither profit nor satisfy for the debt of our former sin. I think that many people really, really just don't see the only righteousness that can merit pardon of sin, get us eternal life, and withstand the judgment of God, the strict judgment of God at the final judgment, is a righteousness that was produced by someone who started out sinless and maintained that righteous sinlessness their entire life. You and I started out with original sin. We can't do that. The only righteousness that has the merit necessary to meet the requirement of the holiness of God is that righteousness that was achieved and performed by Jesus Christ and by Jesus Christ alone. That's what we're talking about when we say we're justified by faith alone. Justification by faith alone is shorthand for justification by the righteousness of Christ alone. My good works as a Christian are stained with enough sin to send me to hell. And yet, they really are good though. In that they go up to the Lord associated with the fragrant aroma of Christ. Okay, next point. Next point. Um, doo -doo -doo, yeah. Okay. Point six. Notwithstanding the persons of believers being accepted through Christ, their good works also are accepted in him. Not as though they were in this life wholly unblameable. They're, they're always very, very anxious to make sure that you understand what they're saying. Uh, that our, our good works 
even though they go up to the Lord associated with Christ, they still are have a lot wrong with them. Not that, not as though they were in this life wholly unblameable and unreprovable in God's sight, but that he, looking upon them and his son, is pleased to accept and reward that which is sincere, although accompanied with many weaknesses and imperfections. And the last point, works done by unregenerate men, although for the matter of them, they may be things which God commands and of good use both to themselves and others. Okay, just stop from the quotation there. I mean, non-Christian doctors, you know, the guy that, that surgically repaired my left hand when I was a teenager um, did a great job. And that was, a, in, in that sense, a good deed. But listen what it goes on to say. Yet, because they proceed not from a heart purified by faith, nor are done with the right manner according to the word of God, nor to a right end, the glory of God, they are therefore sinful and cannot please God or make a man meet to receive grace from God. And yet their neglect of them is more sinful and displeasing unto God. Isn't that a very helpful analysis of that? I, I love that analysis because it's just spot on the money and it's very practical, useful, and it, it keeps things in balance. We are not antinomians by any stretch of the imagination. Those that know Christ will do good works, but they know those good works don't justify them. Those good works do not play any role at all in getting them into heaven. Now, immediately people um, will have questions about what about the judgment of works for reward and the way that scripture talks about heaven being a reward for the life that we live of, of suffering and things like that. Best analysis of this I have ever read, ever read, is from a John Calvin. Listen to this. I love this. I remember reading this in the Institutes of the Christian Religion long ago. It's so good. Listen to this. Scripture, this is John Calvin. Scripture leaves us no reason to be exalted in God's sight. Rather, Scripture's whole end is to restrain our pride, to humble us, cast us down, and utterly crush us. But our weakness, which would immediately collapse and fall if it did not sustain itself by this expectation of reward and going to heaven and things like that, and allay its own weariness by this comfort is relieved in this way. Now listen carefully to this next couple paragraphs. These are, these are, this is theological discourse at its very best. <clears throat> First, let everyone consider with himself how hard it would be for him to leave and renounce not only all his possessions, but himself as well. Still, it is with this first lesson that Christ initiates his pupils, that is, all the godly. Then he so trains them throughout life under the discipline of the cross that they may not set their hearts upon desire of or reliance on present benefits. In short, he usually so deals with them, with the Christians, that wherever they turn their eyes, as far as this world extends, they are confronted solely with despair. You think, what? Really? Does God do that sometimes? Oh, yeah. If you're a Christian, one of the ways that we're conformed to the image of Christ is through suffering. Remember the psalm writer, is it Psalm 72 or 73? There are no pains in their death, but their strength is firm. They are not in trouble as other men, neither are they plagued as other men. Pride serves as their necklace. That's the psalm writer going, you know, I see so much suffering, and I've gone through so much loss and relationships that are strained and all this stuff, and I've got all this heartache and all this suffering, and I've got a disease, and I've had to go through this and to go through that. That's God conforming us to the image of his son. We're confronted solely with despair a lot in the world around us. Now listen to Calvin. Lest they fail amid these great tribulations, the Lord is with them, warning them to hold their heads higher, to direct their eyes farther, so as to find in him that blessedness which they do not see in the world. 
Get stop there. Oh, I want to encourage you when you suffer, when you go through the, the hardest things that you go through in life, that is God calling out to you. You find your blessedness in me. I want you to find your blessedness, your comfort, your everlasting joy in me, not in the world around you. And by giving you these hard times and these trials and despair and heartache, I'm showing that to you. You turn to me. You live on me. Calvin says, he calls this blessedness prize, reward, recompense, not weighing the merit of works, but signifying that it is a compensation for their miseries, tribulations, slanders, etc. Isn't that beautiful? That's exactly right. That's exactly right. When Jesus says you will by no means you lose your reward and, and good works are rewarded. You know, our, our entrance into heavenly glory. It's not that we saved ourselves by our works, but the sacrifices that we make and the, the hard things that we see, the hard things that we go through, the ways that the unbelieving world heaps abuse on us and lies about us and things like that. God is saying, I'm going to reward you for it. I'm going to recompense you for it. To turn that into we're saved by works, that's just neo-legalists destroying what should be a source of comfort to us and turning it into a source of curse. Absolutely blows my mind. I was listening. I watched a video today. A Federal Vision heretic. Well, the Bible talks about how we're there's a judgment of works and that there's future justifications before God by our works. I'm like that is just not what these passages are talking about. For this reason, says Calvin, nothing prevents us with scriptural precedent from calling eternal life a reward, a recompense, because in it the Lord receives His own people from toil into rest, from affliction into a prosperous and desirable state, from sorrow into joy, from poverty into affluence, from disgrace into glory. To sum up, he changes into greater good all the evil things that they have suffered. Thus also will be nothing amiss if we regard holiness of life to be the way, not indeed that gives access to the glory of the heavenly kingdom, but by which those chosen by their creator are led to its disclosure. Such a great sentence. Listen to that. There's nothing amiss if we regard holiness of life to be the way, the, the path that we walk to heaven, not indeed that, that gives us access to the glory of the heavenly kingdom. That's given to us by Christ alone, by trusting in his finished work. And Calvin says, but by, but by which those chosen by God are led to its disclosure. For it is God's good pleasure to glorify those whom he has sanctified. How absurd is it when God calls us to one end for us to look in the other direction? Nothing is clearer than that a reward is promised for good works. To relieve the weakness of our flesh by some comfort. But not to puff up our hearts with vainglory. Okay, so stop here for a minute. Let's say you're going through a situation and you're, you're being lied about. You're, you're, you are being slandered and you bear up under it and you don't fire back. You don't turn nasty. You entrust yourself to the Lord. There is everything good about going, Lord, remember this. I, I, I'm looking forward to getting my reward for this, for doing this for your sake. What a far cry that is from saying, boy, I sure do hope I'm justified by doing this, or this is going to save me. 
Nothing is clearer, says Calvin, than that a reward is promised for good works. That reward is not eternal life or justification. That reward relieves the weakness of our flesh by some comfort, and it does not puff up our hearts with vainglory. Listen, who, whoever then deduces merit of works from this, or weighs works and reward together, wanders very far from God's own plan. Watching that video, I shouldn't have watched that video. It was Rich Rich Lusk talking about James chapter two. I should have known better than to watch that. But him talking about yeah, the Bible, many passages and many, 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 many places talks about the judgment of works for rewards. What does that have to do with justification? Nothing, absolutely nothing. What does it have to do with how we're saved? Nothing. Why are all those passages there about judge, the judgment of works for rewards to encourage us? that our sacrifices aren't for nothing, to encourage us, to comfort us, to let us know God remembers, he sees all this. There is indeed a reward. That reward's not eternal life. That reward is not justification. That, that reward is not being saved. But he does remember our sacrifices. And he does remember the hard things that we went through in a godly way and didn't lash out at him and bore up under them in a way that, that brought him honor and adorned our profession of the gospel. Okay, uh, let me see who else. Ooh, a lot of people chatting over here. Let's see, there's Ryan there. That's, that's where I left off. Cafe Queen, I remember you. There's Jimmy Wheatley. So many books, yeah. Sorry. This is my book corner. Um, Mark Erm, the work of God is only this, that we believe in his son. That's right. That you believe uh, this is the work of God. That's true. Whenever I do a good work, however small, some act of kindness or whatever, I am so grateful to God that he has enabled me by his grace to do so. That's right. Because that, that desire to do so and the ability to do it um, does not originate in us. It's something that comes only from the spirit of Christ to us. Okay. Uh, well, everybody, I appreciate y'all being here and everyone else that didn't chime in on the chat. Uh, it's good to see you all. I uh, hope everything's going well for you. Um, so press on. Don't get discouraged. Keep your eyes on Christ. Keep your eyes on the reward. Um, do what's in your power to do right and to adorn your profession of the gospel and to um, glorify the Lord Jesus and what's outside of your control. Pray and give it to God. Don't worry about it. Thank you all for watching or listening.